I will invite you to make your way to Acts chapter 14. We have arrived at a milestone in our study, especially this week and not next week, but the next, I think June 3rd, because we are at the halfway point of our study in the content of the book of Acts. It's also a milestone for the history of the book of Acts because this section marks the end of Paul's first missionary journey. It's a milestone in the book of Acts. There are how many journeys in the book of Acts? Three. So this is a milestone because we find that the first missionaries are going to return to Antioch and they're returning to the sending church to report on what God had done through them. Remember all of this took place in Acts chapter 13 when the church of Antioch commissioned Paul and Barnabas and the missionary band to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we see it taking place and we see Paul and Barnabas returning to the church in this particular narrative today. Does the church in the book of Acts seem foreign to you? We've gone through 14 chapters. After today, and when you look at the church in, it, in its pristine, embryonic stages, we, we've preached through 14 chapters, and I don't know if you've been hit like I've been hit, but I think to myself, I'm not sure how much we look like the church in the book of Acts. We, we read, and we look, and we pray, and we think, and we, does it look, does it seem foreign to us? And the truth of the matter is, it does. Now, culturally, the, the text was written to a culture unlike us. We know that. Historically, there are events in the book of Acts that will never be repeated, i.e. Pentecost, Paul's dramatic conversion. I've given you some examples. We pray that it won't be repeated, that a Eutychus will fall from the balcony this morning. But that's a possibility if you fall asleep up there, except for the fact we do have a rail to try to keep you in. But there are events in the book of Acts that will never be repeated, but, we, but there are qualities and prescriptive things given in the book of Acts that must be prevalent in our church. We, we know this. We take it away as we read it in the book of Acts. And so this morning, we're going to note some methods, some qualities that were in the first church. We might call it Pauline, Paul, I-N-E, Pauline evangelism and disciple making. I want our church to be Pauline when it comes to methods and qualities that should be present in our church body. That should be our goal, is to be a biblically based church. So we're going to see some of these. Maybe some of them can serve as correctives to get our thinking in the right place so that we are globally Minded, We are mission-oriented, globally-minded, and we really understand what the Bible teaches in regard to the gospel. I want to remind you, we never move away from the gospel. It's a tragic thing if you ever move away from it. In our day of, well, the gospel was special to me 25 years ago, when in Bible school I trusted Christ, but I really haven't considered the gospel since, then I, don't, I, would, I would venture to say that you really didn't experience the gospel in VBS 25 years ago, if you're not living the gospel today. 
So here's the text. Wonderful, wonderful passage of Scripture. Remember, Paul uh, was left for dead. Uh, They uh, pulled him outside of the city and threw him out in a heap. Why? Because they thought he was dead, but he wasn't. And then that's in verse 20, but note verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And... They remained no little time with the disciples. Okay, let's hit the ground running. Y'all ready to listen? Number one, gospel preaching is disciple making. Store that away in your mind. Gospel preaching is disciple making. If you notice this phrase, uh, beginning in verse 21, that they preached the gospel in that city and made many Disciples. Folks, this is very important for our learning today. There are two participles used by the apostle or by Luke in writing about the endeavor. And the, and the participles are gospel preaching and making disciples. And it's interesting to note that they're given to you in a parallel manner. You know what else was given to us in a parallel man, manner, Right? It's Matthew 28, 18 through 20, when we're given what we call the Great Commission from our Lord. So here's the picture. They go into the city, and Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the result of the preaching of the gospel is that disciples are being made. Disciples are being made right up front. There is an apostolic distinction between the method that they used and thought about versus the way we view evangelism and discipleship in our day. For years and years, even in Southern Baptist life, we treated evangelism and disciple-making as two two distinct enterprises. We said they're related, but they're two distinct enterprises. Well, folks, evangelism, we would think, well, that's our evangelistic strategy, much like David mentioned faith, F-A-I-T-H, and how we would decipher that particular evangelistic strategy. And we would say, well, that's what gets them into the kingdom. We evangelize them to get them saved. And then the follow-up is called discipleship. So you know because you've been taught wrongly. So we're committed to discipling someone after we evangelize them. Well, the apostolic pattern and the New Testament pattern does not follow that kind of thinking at all. Gospel preaching is disciple-making. 
This is 100% consistent with the Great Commission itself. Read it. Jesus said, go into all the nations and make disciples. He did not say, go into all the nations and get people to sign a prayer card. That's not what he did. He did not say, get people to pray a prayer. Evangelism in the Bible is disciple making. Disciple making is evangelism. So for Paul, discipleship was not a second step in our evangelism process. It was the very goal of the preaching itself. The reason for the preaching of the gospel is to make disciples. I want to remind you that they were first called Christians in Antioch in chapter 11 of the book of Acts. Again, from a biblical perspective, we need to get this straight. There is no distinction between being a Christian and a disciple. There's also no distinction between evangelism and disciple making. Gospel preaching produces disciples. It produces followers of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples? Follow me and I will... Follow me and you can sit on the back row at FBCO for the rest of your life and sit on your blessed assurance and everything's going to be fine. No, follow me and I will... Yes, same terminology used here. So there's no distinction. Gospel preaching produces disciples, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Disciple making is not a second step after evangelism. Neither is it a higher tier of Christian life. Disciple making is the Christian life. If you are saved, you are a disciple. Now, are you growing like you should? Well, there's something said about that in Hebrews. You ought to be teachers, but you're in need again of a pacifier. You're in need again of milk, and you ought to be on the meat. So, yes, there's distinctive qualities about growing, and growth in Christ is a huge biblical principle. We want our church to be a healthy church, a growing church, but don't mistake it for wrong terminology. To think that there's a difference between someone who is nominally saved and someone who is really a disciple. That's not in the Bible. To be saved is to be a disciple. So if you're not a disciple of the Lord Jesus, then you're not a Christian. Here's the question. What kind of gospel preaching actually produced these disciples? I mean, that's what we have to stop and ask. I mean, Joel Osteen claims to have a church of Christians... Right? But what kind of gospel does he preach? And if anybody ever preached the gospel like Jesus did, I would venture to say it was Paul. Wouldn't y'all believe that? What kind of gospel did Jesus preach? That's really the answer to the question. I would say that Paul preached the gospel, which Jesus is the gospel, but you know that he did preach the gospel in the four gospels. Right? That's why they're called that. And people have rightly pointed out that the demand of discipleship verses that are in the Bible, y'all know which those, y'all know those? Jesus said to the rich young ruler, if you're going to follow me, you've got to sell it all. Because Jesus knew that his heart was in his possessions. Okay? How about this one? If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. How about this one? If anyone would be my disciple... He should hate his mom, his dad, his brother, 
and his cousins. I think I added that one. And his whole life also. So in other words, here's the gospel that Paul preached. It was not a gospel of sign a card. It's going to be okay. God's got a plan for your life. Here's what, here was the gospel. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must die. Folks, there's no other reason for us to have uh, accumulated so many lost, unplugged-in church members. What's happened is we've forgotten the demands of the gospel. We love the salvation, forgiveness part. We don't like the fellowship part of the gospel. Well, folks, I'm trying to get you to understand that the Bible doesn't differentiate between those two. If you are saved and on your way to heaven, you are a disciple. A follower of Jesus. You've counted the cost. Count the cost. Jesus said that, right? Count the cost if you're going to build a building. Count the cost if you're going to go to war. So, the fact is, believers will identify with the demands. And rightly so. People have called those demanding discipleship verses that Jesus gave, the gospel Jesus preached, they've called that the great omission. Right? We've omitted the demands of the gospel, and we've circumvented it with God has a plan for your life. He wants you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperity and yippee, sweetness of all the love, love Jesus loves you. But we've forgotten the demands of the discipleship process. So again, hear this. Paul came preaching Jesus, the demands of the gospel. And yes, he preached the cross of Christ. But the fact of the matter is, in the preaching of the gospel, disciples were made. Paul was committed to a disciple-making gospel. He truly lived this out. It was a call to die to self, but to live to Christ. That's true gospel preaching. We die to self. It's what baptismal waters are for. Buried with Christ through baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life. If the old man is crucified that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. We have one master. His name is Jesus. That's what happens when you know Christ. So, disciple making or gospel preaching is disciple making. You ready for the second one? There's five of them. You better say yes. The second one is disciple making demands courage. Now, let me quickly tell you what's going on. The second part of verse 21 is amazing to me. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Now, folks, Paul goes back to the very cities where his picture is probably on the wall in the post office. And every single one of them. Check out the courage in this man and the passion. He's going back to cities where either he was run out of town, they wanted to stone him, or they did stone him. And here he is with that kind of courage going, can you imagine the missionary band when Paul says to them, Hey, let's go back and visit. Uh, you know, this is just a family time. We're going to go back and visit these cities. And they're like, what? We're going back to those places where you know full well they're going to be after us? Well, in 1419, he was stoned, left for dead. In Acts 14.5, the people wanted to stone him. In Antioch, in 1350, a persecution broke out. Uh, because of him, and you know that's the verse where it says he shook off the dust and moved on. Paul was bearing in his body the scars of Jesus Christ, but here's amazing courage. What is it that compels Paul to go back to these locations? There were disciples in those cities. Isn't that awesome? That, he had preached the gospel, people had been saved, they were made disciples, and they formed ch local church bodies, and he goes back, why? 
because the disciples needed to be encouraged and strengthened. And in spite of all of that danger, here's a man who was more devoted to Jesus than he was his own life. And he had incredible courage to go back. He really lived out to live as Christ and to die as gain. Did he not? Listen, I noticed this before I came in. Philippians 1.20, don't turn, just listen. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be, be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. There's that same courage, right? And then he says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Paul had one ambition in all of life, and that was to honor Jesus Christ. It didn't matter if he died in Lystra or not. He had learned that God is sovereign. And if he died in Lystra, to die is gain. Isn't that good? His number one ambition in life was to honor Jesus Christ. That's why he had so much courage. His number one vision in life was even greater than his ambition. And the number one vision in his life was to be with Jesus. For me to live is Christ. I'm going to live my life right now with courage for Christ. I'm going to live it for him. Why? It may appear that I'm taking a risk. But God doesn't ever take a risk, right? He's sovereign, 100% in control. So Paul knew full well that if he died in Lystra, God ordained him to die in Lystra. But if he lived, you know, when you read Philippians 1, he's torn between staying in that body and going to be with the Lord versus ministering to the people. It's the same context here. But what great courage the Apostle Paul had. And I think what an incredible lesson for us in understanding the courage we ought to have in disciple-making and or giving out the gospel or loving the church body, we need to step up in our day and have a little bit of courage. Quit being a pansy. Somebody say amen. amen. Right? We need to show that courage. Why? Because lack of courage is evidence of the fact that we don't trust our God. We ought to trust Him. Have courage. And Paul has this incredible courage to go right back where they stoned him and ministered to those. All right, number three. Disciple-making encourages perseverance in the strengthening of the soul in preparation for tribulation. You say, preacher, that's a long division. Well, that's the best I could do because I had to put it all in there. Look, it encourages perseverance in the strengthening of the soul in preparation for tribulation. Now, folks, Now look, if that first point was foreign to us of a true understanding of disciple-making and or evangelism, boy, this this is even more foreign to us. That the encouragement that we need is for our soul, and that encouragement is to help us persevere because tribulation is on the way. When's the last time you had a disciple-making class, and that's what you learned? You better buckle your seatbelt, because if you're saved, you better get ready, because all hell is going to break loose against your life. The more you live for Jesus, the more the opposition is going to rear its head. When's the last time you heard that, folks? But that's Bible. That's the kind of encouragement that that Paul is giving to those people. You say, well, it was different back then because they were getting persecuted. That's the problem. We We could take a big dose of persecution. Could we not? Because it's persecution that expands the church of the living God. It's not Americanized Christianity that's going to expand it. 
It's going to expand from people like you and me who are willing to have courage for the gospel's sake. And so here it is. Paul comes in, and it's not a message about making people happy. He strengthens the soul to continue in the faith in light of tribulations. The message was one of perseverance. We need to strengthen the souls of disciples today. And these people in this text are fighting the faith every single day. They're people who are counting the cost to live for Christ. They need their souls strengthened. And here's this parallel and the encouragement. The encouragement and the strengthening are parallel. So what Paul is doing is encouraging and strengthening the soul through teaching them a correct theology of what Christian life is really about. Christian life is not about pie in the sky by and by. It's not what it's about. It's not about easy believism. It's not about just coming to FBCO on Sunday morning and punching your ticket that you came to church. Disciple making, living for Christ, is 100% your life if you're saved. Everything else is on the periphery. And so he's teaching them to remain in the faith, to endure. Why? Because hostility is coming, tribulation is coming, persecution is coming. Question. Could it be that one of the main reasons our churches are so anemic and so many just give simple credence to the gospel and then they're off to the next best thing? Is it because we've never spent much time highlighting the demands of following Jesus Christ and one such demand is you ha- that you have to persevere? Could it be that? You know the Bible says it's the one who endures and persevere that will be saved. Have y'all forgotten that's in the Bible? If people go spiritual AWOL and they leave the faith, John said they went out from us because they were not part of us. Had they been of us, they would have remained. When you go spiritual AWOL on Jesus and you don't persevere, I've got news for you. You're not going to enter eternal life. It's called the perseverance of the saints. I want to remind you that Hebrews 10, 14, one of my favorite verses says, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's a, pre, that's a past tense verb. He's perfected for all time. In other words, what he did initially when he saved you, he perfected that for all time so that you will be in heaven. Amen. But the deal is, if you're not being sanctified in the process, becoming more like Jesus each day, then he didn't perfect you in the beginning. Amen. You didn't know him to begin with. You understand that principle is so clear from the Bible. Those who persevere will enter the kingdom of God. Those that don't persevere will not. You say, well, you can lose your salvation. No, you can't. He's perfected you for all time. But the fact is, if you are perfected for all time, then you will persevere. That makes sense. This is straight up Bible teaching. But here Paul is coming in. And notice the message. That through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Notice the terminology. He's encouraging their souls. He's strengthening people to remain steadfast and persevere. Why? Because God has designed it in such a way that you must enter into the kingdom through many tribulations. That's the design of God. It's through many tribulations. The word means to be pressed from both sides. Anybody felt that lately? Anybody felt the pressure from both sides of being a follower of Jesus Christ? Paul is being extremely realistic here. If you're a true follower of Christ, then this world is not your home. Don't drive your tent pegs too far deep into the soil of this world. 
You're a pilgrim passing through. This home is not your home. Your home is in heaven if you're saved. You're just a passing through. And the fact is, there's a day in and day out pressing from both sides in your life, from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Am I the only one in this building that feels that? I hope not. You know, this world, this system that's anti-God is against you if you're saved. Your flesh is going to fight you all the way to the end because it wants to dominate your life. But there's a new leader in town, and his name is Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God lives in you, and you walk in the Spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But there's that wrestling match, and believe it, the world of the flesh, the devil, he doesn't want you to live for Jesus. He doesn't want you to grow in disciple-making, discipleship. He doesn't want you to become more like Jesus. So these tribulations, they squeeze us. And I want to remind you that God sends the troubling waters to squeeze you as well in order to conform you to His image. You know the story of the potter and the clay? In Jeremiah 18, that's exactly what happens. He's the potter, we are the clay. There's no more picturesque scene of the fact that God is in control and you're not when it comes to the potter and the clay. You're just on that wheel. and He's spinning you. And every time there's a defect or a foreign object in there, He presses you. To form you into what he would have you to be. And the Hebrew is he made it over again and again and again as it pleased good, as it pleased the potter to make it. Aren't you glad that God doesn't throw the clay away? He remolds it and makes it. He makes you into his image and that's what he's doing. To borrow Isaac Watts who wrote, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, here's what he said. It is actually God's design for people to enter into the kingdom not on flowery beds of ease but to sail through bloody seas. Folks, that's foreign to us. It's foreign to us. Yes, salvation is a free gift. Justification is a free gift. Forgiveness of sins is a free gift. But make no mistake about it. Those who are justified by faith, forgiven of their sins, by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, must persevere and face tribulation. The, the imperative is clear. You must enter in through much tribulation. That's what every child of God is going to enter in through. We make a huge mistake when we tell people, we give them this escapism theology to say that if you're in Christ, you're not going to have any worries or problems. Those guys have fallen and bumped their heads, right? We do no one any service to tell them that everything's going to work out just fine for them in every area of life. And you're not going to have difficulties and trials. Folks, God has designed it for trials and tribulations. You're either in one, coming out of one, or getting ready to go into one. That's real Christian living. That's the real Christian life. And we never do anyone a favor by giving them this escapism uh, thing of life. Or just hold on, the church is going to escape the tribulation. I don't think you read your Bible. I don't think you understand what the Word of God says about tribulation. And every verse I read says you better prepare for it. And I know most of you, when your pastor prepares you for tribulation, it sometimes exposes your soft side. And you're like, "Woo, I feel good about Americanized Christianity. We've domesticated this thing, and now you're going to get up there and tell us we're supposed to suffer. All I'm asking is, who's right, the Bible or our, or our society? Yeah, we, we need to listen to what the Word of God says. You need to prepare to endure and face tribulation if you belong to Jesus Christ. 
Number four, disciple-making demands elder leadership. Quickly, what happens when they go back to these churches? They notice there's a need, which tells us that most likely they had no elder leadership. You're looking at an elder, a pastor leader, right? Pastor teacher who's called, gifted to teach the word, and shepherd and flock. Uh, multiple words are used different interchangeably. Elder, presbyteros, overseer, pastor teacher. They're all used synonymously. And the Bible says that as Paul and Barnabas went back to these planted churches, that's what happened, right? They didn't, people didn't become disciples and run out on a golf course and have church. They got saved, they were made disciples immediately, and they got in a local church. And here's Paul coming back through these churches, and he, he knows something. They need elder leadership. They need God-centered leadership, servant leadership. So the Bible says that Paul and Barnabas, we don't know exactly how the appointment went, but just think about this. At best, most of these people had only been saved about two years. Isn't that amazing? Now, unless they were transplants, that became the elders, which I highly doubt. But don't you know that these people trusted their pastor's leadership? And here Paul comes back through. I know he's an apostle. Yes, he is. But he comes back in, and Barnabas and Paul appoint in that local body. The best we can understand, they appoint in that local body elders to do what I do here. I'm a transplant from Georgia, right? Or Alabama, whatever you want to say. But the fact is, we do things different today. I, I realize that. But, and, and there's different understandings of if you should have a single elder-led church versus a plurality. But notice the text clearly. They appointed a plurality of elders. Y'all see that? There wasn't one. There was a plurality of elders chosen for each church. You know what? We've got elders in this church. You don't go by the title. But you're here. You're a teacher gifted by God and shepherding the flock. And we're going to find out who you are. And our church will probably operate a little differently than the past. And you say, well, I don't like that. Well, read the Bible. All right? I'm not pushing on something that's not in the Bible. There's a correct way to do things. But notice it's a plurality of elders. There are lay elders that God intends to use in the church. Uh, when, I, when I say lay, I'm, not talking, I'm talking about people who don't receive an income. Paul talks about those who preach the gospel and are paid through the gospel. He talks about worthy of double hire. He oh, did I say that? <clears throat> Never mind. But he talks about those things. But the fact of the matter is, you don't have to be paid to be an elder. Right? So just notice the, the, the leadership there. And I'm, so, I'm thankful to God for him bringing me to this church. And I hope you've gotten over the last two years a measure of confidence to say, our pastor's going to do all he can to lead us the right way. And I am. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make mistakes. There are going to be head mistakes that I make. God forbid that I ever make a heart mistake to this church body. But head mistakes you will make. But great churches are not built on great leaders, but they are built around great leaders. And we need to pray that God will help me be the kind of leader that honors Christ first and leads this body. But just notice that leadership that was needed in the church. Paul knew that. Paul knew that he had to go back. And what's that, what that reminds us of is perhaps for an interim time of six months to a year, they didn't have any elder leadership. wonder how difficult that was. Oh, about to fail. But here's the deal. So my wife always gets nervous that I'm going to fall, but I was hoping one of my kids would fall during their graduation so we'd have some excitement going on over the weekend, right? 
No, elder leadership, right? Uh, we would call verse 23 a church-based discipleship. And when they had appointed elders for them at every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them before the Lord. Think about the prayer and the fasting part. I could talk so much on this, but I can't do it today. But notice the issue here. God has given you this church, this local church, to be the major context for your discipleship growth. This church body is the number one context for that growth. Not a small group that meets in a house. Okay, that's fine. It's okay. But that's not, number, that's not numeral uno. Uno, number one, is this church body in worship together, in your Sunday school classes together. Uh, please, I'm not downing small group. I'm just saying, you've, been, you've got a local church body and the preaching of the word from this pulpit and from Sunday school classes that is the heart and center of what it means to begin to grow as a believer. That's, what, that's why Paul put this in the local church. That's why he put the leadership there for it to be the center of our disciple-making process. Amen? All right, finally, disciple-making involves God-centered missionary reports. And I didn't get to preach as much as I wanted to. Here's the deal. What happens? They come back to Antioch. And folks are pumped up. Man, it's time for a missionary report. You think, Scott, people think you just make those up, right? And churches just have those. No, here's a biblical precedent that the missionaries went out for a year. And notice what Paul says. Awesome. This is the work that God did through them. They were the instruments. God was the one doing the work. Furthermore, who opened the door of faith to the Gentiles? God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they came rushing in. It's confidence in our God that He's going to get the work done. We're instruments. But the missionary report, they come back, and they report all that God had done. What, that is awesome. Here's my thing. Once or twice a year, we need this at FBCO on a Sunday morning. We need to hear from our missionaries. We need to, we need to know what God is doing around the world. There's a class coming up, as a matter of fact, in the fall called Perspectives. And that's pretty much the design of that class. Where you can hear from godly men who will share their missionary experiences all over the world and help you gain a global perspective. If you've got that time on Monday nights, you need to sign up for that. You need to listen to your pastor, just sit through it, and listen to what God is doing somewhere else in the world other than here. We need to be aware of that. You know, you know, it was a local church. They were in Antioch. Paul went across the sea. They would have had no idea what happened over there had the missionaries not come back. Right? So, in other words, we need to be in tune. We need to be globally minded. We need to be world aware of what God is doing in other places. So don't think it's strange when we have a missionary emphasis conference on a Sunday morning. So that we can hear what God is doing somewhere else in the world. And that's not the time for you to roll over in the bed and hit the clock and say, Well, the preacher's not preaching this morning, so I'm not going. Don't do that. Be a part of your church. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for our church body. Father, thank you for what you're doing. And Lord, I'm just reminded that there certainly could be someone under the sound of my voice that didn't really think about what they were signing up for or didn't understand what true salvation is. 
God, I pray as a church that we would put together as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God. But put that together with, if any man is going to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. They're not separate enterprises. For by grace are we saved through faith and that not of ourselves. That's not separate from disciple making. God, let us examine ourselves. Lord, help us to draw a circle around ourselves in this invitation and ask that simple question. Are we growing in our faith? Am I a Christian? Equal, am I a disciple? Same purpose, same principle. Lord, help us to think about those things. God, help us to think about the local church. Lord, the world tells us the church won't survive, but your word says the church is the only thing that will survive. We know that. God, I pray that you would help us see the local church as the context for disciple-making, as Paul initiated it. God, help us as a church body to be plugged in, Lord, to serve you. Lord, uh, the encouragement we need because tribulation is coming, we, we know what that's like. In, in some ways, to, to live in these bodies that are wasting away, uh, to get up in the morning and, and fill a creek here and, a, and a, something hurting there, Lord, we know that. But, Father, that's just a small, minute understanding of tribulations. Lord, what about being incarcerated for preaching Jesus? Or, or what about receiving stripes for him? What about the mission, missionaries over in uh, North Korea who, were dis, who, who finally got out after years and years of bondage because of the gospel? Lord, uh, we know that. Father, through many tribulations will come. My, my encouragement to our church family is to know that tribulations will come. But one day when we see you face to face, it'll be worth it. Lord, just help our body uh, as a church to grow and be all that you would have it to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.